Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the History Hit World Wars podcast, a podcast dedicated to that turbulent period in history between 1914 and 1945. I'm your host, James Rogers. And on this podcast so far, we have had episodes on the Manhattan Project, on Hiroshima, Nagasaki, on those warmongering generals like Curtis LeMay, who were behind Cold War nuclear strategy, but we've never touched on the darker world of nuclear testing. To help us rectify this, we have Dr. Becky Alexis Martin from Manchester Metropolitan University. She's the author of a fascinating new book, Disarming Doomsday, The Human Impact of Nuclear Weapons Since Hiroshima. And she helps us set this story straight by looking at the disturbing trends of how nuclear weapons were tested by nuclear powers during the Cold War like Britain, China, the US, France, the USSR, on historically oppressed regions and peoples. So this is peoples like the Yugas in China or the Pacific Islanders in places like the Marshall Islands where Britain and the US tested. In fact, they even tested on their own soldiers. In the British case, there are 22,000 British nuclear test veterans who, surprisingly and despicably, are still refused a medal as part of their service. This is an important history. It's not to be missed. So here is... Becky Alexis Martin on the all-too-secret history of nuclear weapons testing. Hi Becky, thank you so much for coming on The World Wars. Hi, thank you. Now, you are a university lecturer. We've had a few academics on the show recently. How has COVID been for you? How's teaching? Oh, it's completely changed the way that we usually teach. As a cultural geographer and historic geographer, normally we get out and we see places and spaces and we previously we'd go and look at kind of historic monuments, that sort of thing. Whereas now it's all been online. My students have had an almost entirely Teams-based teaching this term, which has been, they've been really good about it, actually. I'm very grateful and very proud of them for working as hard as they have. But it's been very different. I bet it's been different for you too. So. Yeah, absolutely. But you've been... Uh redefining the way in which your students think about nuclear war by the power of Zoom and Skype and everything else. So impressive stuff. And in fact, 
That's probably one of the things I find most fascinating about your work is that you push our memories beyond Hiroshima and Nagasaki, which of course are incredibly important, but we also consider many of the other civilian populations that have been implicated by nuclear fallout. So, enlighten us, Becky. Where should we begin when we're talking about nuclear weapons, weapons testing, and their impact on populations? Thank you. Um, That is a fantastic question and a really interesting place to begin. So arguably, nuclear weapons have had a global impact, but it's not perceptible to most of us. So all of us have this tiny little bit of radioactivity in the sediment all around the world from the nuclear weapon tests that were undertaken during the Cold War, for instance. But it's, these kind of impacts, are, you know, they're so small as to be imperceptible, you wouldn't notice them. You'd only notice if we were looking for maybe a bit of radioactive strontium in your bones or something, it's not going to give you cancer, for example. But when we're thinking about the communities that have been affected, who are civilian, there's a really kind of diverse plethora of communities that have been specifically affected by you know, nuclear weapons manufacturing or testing. And places I begin to think about this would be indigenous American communities, indigenous Australian communities, particularly those near Maralinga, so Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities, the Pacific communities who are affected by nuclear weapon tests, and also Chinese communities and those in the former USSR. So arguably, every state that has tested nuclear weapons has created some sort of effect to local communities. But arguably, of course, at the time the weapons were tested, there was this perception of great risk and great fear during the arms race that meant that these countries disregarded these communities, you know, these particular communities' health and well-being to pursue nuclear weapons instead. So there's this dichotomy, really. So where we begin, I'd say perhaps in the USA, perhaps with the Manhattan Project, perhaps with Los Alamos, the secret city, but arguably it is a global topic that spreads out across the world. Yeah, so from those Trinity tests and Oppenheimer and the Manhattan Project. But this quickly escalates as we enter into that delicate period of nuclear stalemate that we call the Cold War. So where did the US start to test its even bigger nuclear weapons once the Second World War had ended? So after the Trinity test of 1945, which was conducted in Alamogordo in New Mexico, then a new Nevada test site was established. So you had a series of post-war nuclear weapon tests that cemented the US's prowess in the nuclear domain. You had tests such as Sandstone and Ranger and Greenhouse and these kind of physics experiments in the midst of the Nevada desert in these secret spaces and places. But then later on, they didn't want to undertake their kind of bigger multi-megaton nuclear weapon tests, such as Ivy. They didn't want to undertake those in US ground. So they looked for somewhere that was comparatively uninhabited, you know, somewhere that was seen as being part of maybe the last vestiges of empire, somewhere that could be depicted as like this empty wasteland. And they went for the Pacific. So the Pacific, in actuality, does have a thriving population of Pacifica communities across the Sea of Islands within that region. But at the time, and that space was used, so you had tests like Operation Ivy and Castle Bravo. 
that were undertaken in what was called the Pacific Proving Ground near the Marshall Islands. Now, one of the really interesting things about this, actually, is that the US wasn't the only country that was undertaking these nuclear weapon tests in this place. So the US started it. But of course, the UK wanted to have a piece of this atomic muscle, essentially. And so they began to plan and undertake their own nuclear weapon tests, developing knowledge from the US. And the other interesting thing as well is that the US provided kind of knowledge and understanding to develop nuclear weapons to the UK, but also simultaneously to France. So they also had their own series of Pacific tests. And part of this Cold War was an arms race with the former Soviet Union, so the USSR at the time, also possessing nuclear weapons and undertaking these tests in places, um, usually in far north Siberia. So for instance, you had Navaya Zemla, which was the largest hydrogen bomb test and the biggest test undertaken ever. It was a multi-megaton test. It was monstrous. So that's kind of how it developed afterwards. I mean, it's crazy to think isn't it you've got a nuclear congested pacific ocean and the islands around there and these these peoples these communities having to put up with these vast amounts of bombs going off all around them i think and correct me if i'm wrong but the u.s tested between what 60 and 70 nuclear bombs around places like bikini atoll and they evaporated entire islands Is there any of these tests that, well, went wrong and perhaps didn't go to plan? Because I'm pretty sure there must be quite a large margin for error here. That's a really good place to begin, actually. So one of my things that I'm quite interested in is near misses. And I think one of the best places to think about that would be the American Castle Bravo test in the Marshall Islands that was undertaken on the 1st of March 1954. And it was the highest yield American test that exploded with this force equivalent to 15 million tonnes of TNT. So it was 25 times more powerful than expected. And this had repercussions. So this had problems. So, you know, when they undertook this test, it was argued that some Japanese fishermen were caught in this test and affected because it was unexpectedly large. And it was known as the Lucky Dragon incident, in fact. So it was quite an important event, really. It was Lucky Dragon number five, to be specific. So it was a fishing boat with 23 crew. And their course took them quite near to Bikini Atoll, where um, Castle Bravo was being detonated. So they got caught in this fallout and became unwell. They were treated for acute radiation syndrome, so radiation sickness. But many of them had bad life outcomes. So even during the treatment, the blood transfusions weren't very high quality. So some of them were unwell from a radiation sickness and then unwell from a blood transfusion afterwards. So it seared into Japanese memory alongside Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the Lucky Dragon event. And that's a good example of how some of these tests didn't go quite to plan. But it's hard when you're testing a new technology you didn't imagine. So, Of course, yeah, far more powerful than you first think. And there's some in the archives, if you go through some of the papers, who comment on the bombings of Hiroshima and then Nagasaki and They're far more powerful than many had expected they were going to be as well. So I suppose this experimentation on peoples is very much a trend that starts at the very, very beginning with these weapons. Like you say, they're brand new. We don't know what they're going to do. They're unpredictable. And then the consequences of that. And one of the other things that fascinates me about this is that, of course, it wasn't just civilian populations caught up in this. But governments, like the US government and the British, sent their own troops to be, well, test dummies 
for nuclear weapons? Yeah, it's a very challenging situation. I think I know a little about the atomic veterans. Um, I know that there's the US Radiation Compensation Act, so there's some recognition and support towards their experiences and the challenges and their health problems that they've had. But I've studied and researched the British nuclear test veteran community. I did a project that produced a report called Nuclear Families for the Nuclear Community Charity Fund from 2016 to 2018, where I learned about their lives and the cultural and social impacts of the nuclear weapon tests to them. And many of them, you know, even 50, 60 years later, were still having PTSD-like flashbacks where they recalled that experience of kind of having their fists and their eye sockets and hearing and experiencing the detonation of the British nuclear weapons, whether it was the Grapple series, so Grapple X and Grapple Y, which were the UK's first test of the hydrogen bomb and the UK's largest detonations as well, or other tests. It was still, it's been quite difficult for them to reconcile their experiences and it's been difficult for them to gain any kind of reparations as well. In fact, they've recently just had an unsuccessful medal campaign. So the British government has decided not to award them a medal the first week of December that document came out. So it's been a long journey for them. And while I work predominantly thinking through kind of the cultural and social effects and there are other academics and those down at Brunel University who research the biological impacts and the psychological impacts to these communities. And their work is showing that there is long-term cognitive effects to these communities. So it's been quite hard, I think, not having that explanation as well and working within kind of a culture of secrecy where you kind of can't really ask the questions maybe that you want to ask. So, You know what? I can see where the military or the government might be able to think that they can justify not paying reparations for soldiers who, you know, accept the call for duty and put themselves into harm's way for the country. But you can't really deny the bravery here, can you? And so it's bizarre that you think you can deny these people a medal. I agree. I think that it's a very unique course of service. And we know that the, in the UK, our Queen has awarded a New Zealand nuclear test veterans a medal and the US veterans have been awarded a medal. So kind of internationally, it's unusual. Although in the UK, there's very much the argument that you have to have undertaken, as you said, something that requires um, you know, quite dramatic, quite considerable bravery. And I think one of the challenges is that recognition. So no politician alive will have lived through nuclear weapons testing or nuclear war personally. As far as I know, maybe somebody will get in touch and be like, I'm an MP and, or I'm a lord and I did. But, but as far as I know, nobody has that unique experience. And I think unless you've actually spoken to some of these gentlemen who are now in their early 80s, you don't really realise kind of the severity of that impact. And also the, the other challenges of service. So they had beyond the nuclear weapon tests, and this is something I'm very interested in, is kind of the other difficulties. They experienced long periods of tedium, depression, anxiety, just the challenges of living on an island for nine years straight with the same people, you know, and no links to your family. And a lot of these um, men, they were working class. They came from these really close-knit family communities. So suddenly having that loss of community was quite hard for them kind of going there and rebuilding and, you know, hoping that they made friends while they were out there. So it wasn't as often depicted as being the joyful tropical island experience, but it was a lot more complex and in some ways darker than that. So there were suicides documented among veterans who were on the island as well as after, you know, living through that experience.
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. It's hard to look back and to think that any of this could ever be justified, but I spent a year digging through the Library of Congress archives and going through President Truman's papers and his diary and his attempts after the Second World War to try and build this idea of one world or none, this enshrined within the United Nations, the idea that the nuclear capacity could be put in the hands of an international organisation so that other nations didn't need to build nuclear weapons, so you didn't have this proliferation of nuclear destruction. But when it gets to 1949 and Stalin tests the RDS-1, or known as the Joe-1 by the Americans, named after Joe Stalin... Does Truman not have... I mean, his hands are tied, right? You have to start building up the nuclear arsenal. You have to start doing the tests. Was this, in the world in which we live, just inevitable and necessary for national security? That is a fascinating question. And I think that considering and debating and thinking through the ethics of proliferation is something else that I'm quite passionate about, actually. And um, one of the reasons that I'm passionate about it is because I'm actually on the board for the CND for CND education. And I think that we can't just look at it in a straightforward way. You know, at the time, national security was a tremendous issue. And we were post-World War II. We were beginning to become post-Empire. And it was a much more fragile and dangerous world, arguably, than the world we live in now. And so you could have envisaged that, you know, when the US developed this tremendous you know, weapon of mass destruction with the capacity, as shown by Hiroshima and Nagasaki, to kill tens of thousands, even hundreds of thousands of people. Then the moment that you have that proliferation, that development from the other side, that it becomes more dangerous. And at that point, I think it was the Rand Corporation in the 60s who developed this idea of mutually assured destruction. But at that point, this idea that nuclear warfare could affect not just 
the target nation state, but the attacker nation state wasn't recognised at that point. I think it's very important, actually, that the Rand Corporation came out with this idea of a mutually assured destruction, MAD, because it, I think at the time, hopefully prevented some of the further proliferation and led to important policies coming into place that helped to prevent further proliferation and further harms. But it was a very difficult time from a perspective of national security. I think it's quite hard for us to imagine just how much of a threat the US and the former Soviet Union posed to each other. So whether it was ethically necessary, perhaps when we think contemporaneously it was, but when we think about the um, nuclear situation now and the successful ratification of the Treaty for a Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons recently, then perhaps not. Perhaps we need to think about ways forward beyond nuclear weapons and think forward through perhaps beyond arms control to disarmament. But it's a big question to ask with big answers. Yeah, so we had Fred Kaplan on the show a few weeks ago, talking about his new book, The Bomb. And we spoke about RAND and how they were almost the rational thinkers in this strange time when people like General Curtis LeMay were pushing and pushing for massive retaliation. The idea that you have up to, what, 18,000 nuclear warheads sent all at once into the Sino-Soviet bloc, even if China didn't even commit to nuclear war, 200 and something million people dead, vast wildfires going straight across Europe and into Western Europe as well. And so Rand were trying to provide an alternative to this, but it all gets tied up in the idea that you can limit nuclear war, which perhaps is what is the most fundamentally flawed thing at the heart of it. And of course, no matter what, these weapons also then proliferate, so we're presented with even more of a problem. Perhaps you can tell us a bit more about this global history of nuclear weapons, because we have spoken a lot about the US and the UK and the USSR, but let's put the world back into nuclear world war. What's the experience in China or India or Pakistan or Australia or South Africa or France or North Korea? Well, I think China would be a nice place to begin, actually, as I've written about China's nuclear history through the lens of Lop Noor and the nuclear weapon tests undertaken there. And in fact, while I was thinking through that particular issue, I came up with a new way to define and think through the changes across time. So I came up with this idea of a nuclear imperialism necropolitics nexus to try and think about the point whereby we go from imperialism and the effects consequences of capitalist formation, intervention and militarization of space, let's say, on the ideological, cultural and material domination of one group or nation state or ideology by another fruit of this necropolitical idea where there's a decision by state, which is then kind of integrated perhaps this nuclear place about who will live and who must die. So in the context of China, though, I think it's very intriguing because you've got this legacy of um, nuclear weapons testing. And it was undertaken again in a kind of very remote region. So it was undertaken in the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region. So this area in the northwest of China, um, where you've got a lot of people of kind of Turkic Muslim origin. So again, indigenous people. So during the Cold War, China undertook nuclear weapon tests and Xinjiang was selected to play this part in China's nuclear weapon testing during the early 1960s. And so for 50 years, this kind of space and its people have been affected 
by China's nuclear ambitions. So you had uranium mining there before China's first atomic bomb was undertaken and uranium mining in Tibet as well. So you had this nuclear history in that space. And so in 1958, the Chinese settlement, so they had number 404 factory of China, nuclear core, was built to kind of refine plutonium and produce components for nuclear weapons. And this was all happening at the same time that the US was testing nuclear weapons out in the Marshall Islands and that the UK was testing its um, first and largest nuclear weapon test, so that grapple test out in Carissimus. You know, these Pacific tests were happening. So China was looking over and thinking, oh, could do some nuclear weapons. And so initially they were developed with support from the USSR, but by 1959, the kind of support had ceased. And so the People's Republic of China continued to develop these nuclear weapons and continued to pursue ownership of the atomic bomb without Soviet support. So they established the Lot Nor nuclear test site in 1959 on the 16th of October. And it's still the largest site of its type in the world, apparently. And so on the 16th of October 1964, so five years later, um, the People's Republic of China undertook its first successful atomic bomb test on the Lot Nor testing ground. And they used loads of like their own military and marine soldiers. But it's quite interesting because rather than using local Uyghur communities to test these bombs, they brought in what they call Han people, so the majority Chinese community to undertake a lot of this nuclear weapon testing. So that was soldiers who were doing the tests. And the local community, similarly to Kazakhstan or to the Russian tests, the Siberian tests, stayed relatively local. So these soldiers, they've been recognised and their work has been rewarded by China, interestingly. So they're another country that's given their nuclear weapon test as a medal. But it's quite interesting because there's been this kind of long-term consequence. So China developed nuclear weapons and they argued that it was a major contribution by the Chinese people to the cause of defence of world peace. So that was a communique by Beijing at the time of the nuclear weapon test. So they undertook further 22 atmospheric tests and 22 underground nuclear weapon tests over the next 32 years in that space. And the test facility, even after the death of Mao Zedong in um, 1976, so this end of the Cultural Revolution and this change in leadership that was focused on economic market liberalisation and industrialization, after that... The Lot Nor test facility remained uncompromised. So this was a continuing, ongoing pursuit. It was unaffected even by local activism. So I think it's quite interesting, right, because the communities, the Uyghur communities who live there, some of them have had these kind of longer term effects. So they're all take, these tests were all undertaken across Uyghur homelands. So it's the equivalent of Aboriginal homelands, for the US tests that were undertaken by the British, for example, in that people already had lived there for quite a long time before the tests were undertaken. So it was like internal colonialism almost that the Uyghur people were affected by. And um, Lop stands out as well because it's arguably one of the more heavily contaminated nuclear test sites. So the airburst tests that are undertaken from 1964 to 1980 released fallout across Xinjiang and eastern Kazakhstan. So there have been studies that argue that local populations have been affected. And so it's quite interesting because there's also been studies that argue that cancer incidence in the rate is higher than the state average by about 30 to 35 percent. 
but it's very difficult to ascertain whether this is due to quality of life, whether this is due to other life factors, so things like lifestyle choices or the you know, nuclear weapon tests themselves. And because of this uncertainty, actually, this is a more universal issue, I'd say, or more universal challenge because of this uncertainty. It makes it very difficult to prove effect. Um, you know, it makes it quite easy for governments to argue against support for these particular communities because there's so many other things that cause conditions, um, you know, related. So these long-term effects to these communities. And I think it's quite interesting as well because the weak community, um, you only need to look at the BBC News to see that they're currently experiencing these human rights abuses, essentially. And so one of the things that I find interesting and challenging and very sad, actually, is that often these communities who have been affected by nuclear weapons tests and are then later on even now still facing challenges, in, you know, particularly for the Uyghur community in recognition of what they lived through. But then when we think more globally, I'm a geographer after all, you know, thinking through, for instance, Marshall Islanders and what they're going to do in light of climate change or Kiribati people or French Polynesian people and what's going to happen next for them and how what choices they get to make. Again, it's almost like history is repeated. And while there are no nuclear weapons being tested upon these communities now, their choices and their autonomy is still being neglected, you know, and they need to be listened to and supported. I think the key point here is that Nuclear tests on populations and peoples, be they civilian or military, appear to reinforce and entrench long-held biases either against indigenous populations or oppressed ethnic groups, or of course those from a different class, those who are from working class communities and are at the lower rankings in the military. So there's definitely a quite disturbing binary divide, isn't there? Now, is this one of the most important legacies that we need to take from this? Or are there others that we should be mindful of that bring us up to date? Because there must be some geological impacts and long lasting impacts as well as the just the human impacts. That's a really interesting place to think actually and think through. So I've actually written a book chapter thinking through nuclear weather and after nuclear war so and I'm just putting together a paper entitled after nuclear war future archaeologies and radiant afterlives and so yeah um, it's really intriguing thinking about the longevity of what has been undertaken so it isn't just this kind of immediate human impact in fact when we think geologically it's not just historically entangled with nuclear imperialism or thinking about kind of future challenges for communities. The traces of whether it's underground nuclear weapon tests or surface nuclear weapon tests are scorched into our stratigraphy. They are there as a permanent record. There's even um, trinitite, a particular type of glass, a silica that forms from nuclear weapon tests and that is found in the deserts of Nevada and Alamogordo where these tests are undertaken. So this nuclear weapon test are kind of cross-cutting deep time, future geologists and archaeologists. And however long a period will kind of look and see this, what is called amphroturbidation, this human um, change to the geological environment that'll be unaffected by things like weathering and erosion, particularly for the underground tests, right? So they could persist for millions of years into the future, these traces of testing, you know, providing geological evidence of our atomic age, you know, long after the demise of the atomic mushroom cloud, and perhaps even after humanity itself. And that is just a trace of the test itself. When we think about the legacy of nuclear waste, when we think about the isotopes that are produced, you know, we're thinking about plutonium, americium, curium. 
Some are short-lived, but some have really long half-lives. So these big, heavy isotopes like plutonium, performed from plutonium and uranium, can last for thousands of years. So one of the things that I think is particularly interesting and that Elle Carpenter works with down at Goldsmiths, so she has a project called Perpetual Uncertainty, and she thinks through how we will recognise and how we will see future threats inscribed that are nuclear in nature. So she looks at nuclear energy, but also nuclear warfare, so nuclear waste, and how we will recognise it when we're beyond the mushroom cloud and beyond nuclear weapons itself. Thank you so much. You've taken us on a nuclear geographical journey and given us the tools that we need to understand these events and the extraordinary human and environmental cost of nuclear weapons. So where can people read more about this? Where can we read your work? So I have a plethora of academic papers for those who are interested and I publish across geography and political science. But I also thought that it would be really good to be able to write something that was academic but accessible because one of my big challenges is that academia isn't very egalitarian often it's kind of ivory tower writing ivory tower language so I produced a entirely referenced and peer-reviewed book entirely about nuclear geography past present and future called disarming doomsday so that is my book it won an award this summer I was very humbled and very shocked and flattered to win the LHM Ling outstanding first book prize particularly as it is named after such an amazing academic whose values I can really you know ascribe to and also I was very shocked to be shortlisted for the Bread and Roses award which was um, a bit of an honour and that was alongside Francis Ryan and a few other quite well-known people so and me <laughs> so I was very surprised but if you want to kind of have an accessible and comprehensive insight into nuclear geography so by that I mean everything to do with nuclear warfare through space place and time that you know has substance then I would recommend it but I did write it so there are many other amazing academics out there at the moment so I would recommend the work of Christopher Hill he wrote a book about peace and power that's very good I would recommend Gabrielle Schwab's new book oh my goodness it's amazing it's called Radioactive Ghosts and I loved it and I would recommend anything by Gabrielle Heck because her stuff is absolutely fascinating. She's a historian and she's out there and she's doing amazing things. And she was one of the kind of first protagonists of proto-nuclear geographies, as I would call it. So she looked at challenges of uranium in Africa, but she's written all sorts of other things as well. So that's where I would say to begin. Well, there you go. We've got a full reading list there. Thank you so much, <laughs> Becky. I've read the book. It is award-winning for a reason, so I suggest you go out there and buy it. Becky, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much, James. It's been an absolute pleasure. And um, yeah, thank you so much for your time. So. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? 
Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.